the religious leaders. They come, uh, and how, do, how, how can I say that so confidently? Because I don't think Jesus would say this to the Roman rulers. Because I don't think that the Roman rulers were searching the Jewish scriptures. So Jesus, to the religious rulers, says this. This is in the, uh, the NIV. Uh, the King James says something similar. Um, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. God, I pray in these next few moments as we look into the scriptures that we would see Jesus clearly. And God, as we look into the scriptures, we would, that it would act as a mirror for ourselves. We would see ourselves for who we really are. God, then it would also act as a reflector of Jesus. We would see Jesus for who he really is and who we need to become. Bless us in these next few moments together. God, open up our ears and let us hear what you would have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So John, the fifth chapter, gives us this account of Jesus' words where he's talking to the rulers and he says, you search the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life or that they will give you eternal life. But the scriptures are pointing to me. Well, the scriptures at that time were not the Bible that you hold in your hand. The scriptures at that time were the law and the prophets. And then a few books like Ruth and Job. The law and the prophets and Ruth and Job. If you were here last week, you know that I talked to you about Ruth and Naomi. The first chapter of the book of Ruth. And so this is kind of an odd scripture to open with to go to the book of Ruth. But we're going to do just that. Because I believe that in the book of Ruth, even though Jesus Christ is not mentioned by name, I believe if we look, we can see him. Because I do believe that Jesus meant what he said here when he said, the scriptures testify about me. And yes, he's talking about Isaiah 6, Isaiah 53. He's talking about the uh, Daniel, the Messiah, the prince when he comes. He's talking about all the specific, but I believe in every page of the Bible that you can find Jesus. <clears throat> and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look a little bit at the book of Ruth. And I want to finish that story. We, talked, we, we just did the first chapter last week. We talked a little bit about where they came from, how they came back to um, Bethlehem and that it was barley season. The barley harvest was just about to begin. So I'm going to read a lot of scripture. Um, I'll try to read it fast. Um, but I believe that a lot of scripture is good for us. Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. She went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseers of his harvesters, 
who does that young woman belong to? So I guess in, in Boaz's time, the Lord be with you was equivalent to how you doing <laughs> in today's vernacular. I, when I read that, I thought that's, that was interesting. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the fields, to the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the uh, water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told about all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants." At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvester, she, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So, that's not the end of the second chapter of Ruth, but I'm going to jump ahead to the third chapter. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing, winnowing. He'll be doing something to the barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Now, the story's about to get PG-13. I'm glad all the kids are gone. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go uncover his feet and lie down. Many of you are fortunate your relationships didn't start out this way because they would have turned and ran. I've seen some of you at sandal time. No, I'm kidding. Forgive me, Lord. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, he was in good spirits. He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He probably was cold. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you have shown earlier. You have not uh, run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for, for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am guardian, guardian redeemer of your family, there's another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. 
Lie here until morning. Don't put that on your Valentine's card, gents. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured it out. He poured out six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled. All right, we're going to get into the fourth chapter in just a moment, but I realize some of you weren't here last week and you may, might not know the story of Ruth and Naomi. I'm going to give you the brief, synop- brief synopsis. Ruth leaves, I'm sorry, Naomi with her husband and uh, Elimelech and her son Chilion and Milion. They leave Bethlehem to go to Moab where there's food because there's a bit of a famine in Bethlehem. They go there. Uh, her husband dies and then her sons take wives and then her two sons die. And then Naomi comes back to Bethlehem because she heard that the Lord had visited them with bread. So she goes back to Bethlehem. And last week was all, we talked all about Naomi and Ruth coming back. Well, now, uh, now we find out in the story that Naomi wants to, to pair Ruth up with this Boaz gentleman to give her a good life, to give her um, life. So, 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 so to protect women in those days... When their husband died, they had what they called a kinsman redeemer or a guardian redeemer is what this translation calls it. And so let's say that I'm married to Sally and God forbid something were to happen to me. I mean, hopefully she has good life insurance or it'd probably be a Dateline episode or something. God forbid something were to happen to me. If I had a next of kin, a brother or something, then he would take on my kids, my property and my family so that because in those days, the uh, women were not protected as well. Single women by themselves were not, they didn't have a covering. So God provided in the law a, a covering for them. And, and you read the end of the second chapter of, of Ruth. Naomi says, uh, go, go stay in his field so that someone else doesn't harm you. Because women gleaning in fields, an, another provision of the law was that when you harvested your field, you had to leave some. For the people who were poor, the widows and the poor. You couldn't harvest everything. You had to leave some for those people who, who had no property, no land. And they would come and harvest it themselves. And so when, when people saw women by themselves harvesting, going behind the harvesters, they, they knew they were vulnerable. And so as a way of protecting Ruth, Naomi says, go and do this. Go and do this. Go, go get Boaz to be the kinsman redeemer or the, uh, the next of kin redeemer, the kinsman redeemer or the, uh, I can't remember what this version calls it. Anyway, you get the gist. So that's what's going on here. Now Boaz is about to go to the guy who has, who's a closer relative who has first dibs on the land. Okay, so that's where we are in the story. I didn't want to keep reading without clarifying. Okay, Ruth 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there as the guardian redeemer. There's the word I was looking for. He had, uh, he had mentioned... What? Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate, sat down there, oh, as just as he has mentioned. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. 
So he went over and sat down. So this guardian redeemer came and sat down with Boaz. Boaz took 10 elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. And he said to the guardian redeemer, uh, Naomi, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the, the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so. I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. Another translation says it because it will ruin me. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of finalizing transactions in Israel. Thus, that's why she uncovered his feet. So the guardian said, uh, and, if, and if you and I ever do a deal, don't do this. <laughs> we try to put a crock in my hand. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I also have acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders of all the people... The elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. Um, when they got together, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law... Uh, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman, the woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's all we'll read. Just then it goes on to give the lineage of David. That's a lot, I know. I'm sorry. A lot of twists and turns in that story. It kind of plays out like a Hallmark movie a little bit. Because it just seems like the ending is too good. The ending is too good. But I pointed this out last week. One of the things I love about this story, it says it happened in the time of the judges. It happened in real time. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Nowhere in the book of Ruth are the judges Samson named or Deborah. There was no famous people in this story. It's just it's happening to real people in real time, in real life. No miracles, no salvations. Uh, there was no prophet to save the, the family of Naomi at the beginning. There was no great healings. It was real life, real pain, real suffering. And that's one of the things I love about this story. It happens 
God shows up. The story happens. The providence of God happens while people are just working in fields. People are threshing grain. People are going about their everyday life, and God is there. God is a silent character in Ruth, but he's there. His providence is there. And you might feel like sometimes, God, where are you? My life is so mundane. My life is so boring. No, no, God is with you. God is walking with you. God is there in the mundane. While working in the fields, he's there. While threshing the barley, while taking naps by the grain, God's there. While buying property with a sandal, he's there. The story happens in real life. And that is where God does the majority of his work. Yes, I believe that when we come together, there is power and unity. And that when we pray, the scripture says, where two or three gathered, or, or, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst. Then we said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. I believe there's power in unity and power in prayer and power in community. But the majority of God's work in your life is going to be done out there. Yes, yes, transformational things happen inside a church. Yes, the, the, some of the greatest moments of my life have been at this altar as a kid growing up or as an adult surrendering again. But putting God into action happens out there. It's where God does the majority of his work. Most of God's work happens out there. And I believe part of the problem is when we come to church, we suspend real life. And then we come in here, and then we do churchy things. And we talk about Jesus, and we talk about God, and we pray. But then we go out there and we suspend all of that. We go out there and we don't pray. We don't talk about Jesus. We don't try to be like Jesus. We, we try to we compartmentalize our lives. Oh, all that church talk, all that Jesus talk, that's, that, all, that happens on Sundays. But that's part of the problem, is that it's in real life that you should lean on Jesus, when you should pray, when you should talk about Jesus. I'll tell you a story I heard. I'll I'll make it briefer than, than the one I heard. There was this uh, atheist man, and he was a devout atheist. He was like an evangelist atheist. He was proud of the fact that he could talk people out of believing in God. In fact, he would keep track of the people he talked out of Christianity. And every Sunday, when the rest of the world was going to church, he would go out in the mountains and walk and talk to himself. While the rest of the world was praying, he would go to the mountains and talk to himself about his problems and try to gear himself up, get himself excited about going back and, and evangelizing more Christians over to his side. Well, one day while he's walking, he trips forward and his foot gets caught between these two rocks. But all of his weight is forward and he cannot get out. He is stuck. He can't, he's tried everything. He's been there for minutes, turns into an hour. And he's stuck. Well, off in the forest, he hears a noise. He hears branches. And he looks, and there's a big black bear. Not a black bear. What's the bigger one? Grizzly. Grizzly. Thank you. I knew I'd mess the story up. And this grizzly is coming towards him. And all of a sudden, this atheist who talks people out of believing in God <laughs> starts talking to God. 
He's like, God, if you'll get me out of this situation, I will turn my life around. I will become an evangelist for you. And right then the bear lunges and time stands still. Okay, now you know the story didn't really happen. Time stands still and God says, what do you want me to do for you? He's like, if you will save me right now, I will be an evangelist for you. I will talk to people about you. I will renounce all of my ways. And God said, okay, what is it you want me to do? And he said, make this bear a Christian. He said, make this bear a Christian? Yeah, make this bear a Christian. And God said, okay. Snapped his fingers. The bear stops right where he is, bows his head, says, Lord, I thank you for this food that I'm about to eat. (laughs) The point of the story is that sometimes claiming to be Christian or we as Christians were just more polite beasts. We're just as brutal as everybody else, but we're a little more polite about it. But that's not what we're called to be. We're called to when we leave here, not to leave Jesus here, not to leave the life of Christ here, but when we go out there to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and to walk as he walked. He is not just a pie in the sky, ticket to heaven. Jesus, uh, you forgave me once in church. You're coming back for me later on. I've got everything else in the middle figured out. No. It is a transformation that happens. It's a day by day following him. Paul the apostle said, I die to myself daily. It's a daily thing. It's It's a day by day thing. Sometimes a minute by minute thing. Walking this life. It's true. We, we, we can't carp, carp, <laughs> carp, menten, carp mentalize. Carp, you know what I'm trying to say. Carp, what he said. We can't do that with our Christianity. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not very educated. <laughs> I can't say big words. We can't do that with our Christianity. Or it will lead to an unsuccessful Christian life. It will lead to us probably walking away at some point. <clears throat> we can't suspend real life when we come in here. What's that mean? It means we come in here with all of our baggage, with who we really are. We're honest about who we really are when we come in here. We don't just put on a smile and when people say, is everything okay? Well, of course it is, yes. No, we're real about it. We don't suspend real life when we come in here. We're ourselves when we come in here. And when we go out there, we don't suspend Christian life. Amen. Amen. So that's... I'm not real sure how I got that out of Ruth, but when I was reading it, I did. Okay, so let's look for Jesus in this story that I just read you. Here's something about Ruth. Every time she's mentioned, she's followed with a tagline. Ruth, the Moabite. She doesn't ever get just mentioned as Ruth. She's Ruth, the Moabite. The world will put taglines on you. Right? They do. Oh, do you know he's divorced? They will. The world will put taglines. The church will put taglines on you. 
God forbid be this church. But people will put taglines on you. Oh, they're divorced. Oh, they're not very good with money. They're bankrupt. They're not educated. They're not very smart. They've got addiction issues. They're bankrupt. They're loose living. I don't think there's any kids in here. There's some, but you've all heard this about people. They're a tramp. The world will put taglines on you. The churches, church will sometimes, church people, Christian people will put tags, disqualifying taglines. This was a disqual. Honestly, this was a disqualifying tagline. Boaz shouldn't be thinking about marrying a Moabite. In fact, we, I talked about this last week. Naomi and uh, Elimelech should have never gone to Moab in the first place. The world will put labels on you. The church will sometimes put labels on you. Jesus doesn't do that. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. If you are the type of person who puts taglines after people's names, that is not what you're called to do. As a believer in Jesus Christ, God has forgiven you of your sins and wiped away your past. The old is gone. Behold, all things have become new. And then, and then Paul tells us, and he's called us to the ministry of reconciliation. Church, we have got it wrong. Church people turn on church people so quick. I've been in church all my life. Many of you have too. You've seen it. We turn on one another. We're not called to do that. We're called to reconciliation. We're called to reconciliation. Not labeling others, not bringing up other people's past. We're called to reconciliation. So whether you've been labeled or whether you label other people, give that to Jesus today. Give it to Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Amen. Let him do that in you today. There's nothing that disqualifies you from the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Nothing. We are called to be agents of reconciliation. Your past does not define you. Your station in life is not all that you are. When you come to Christ, you are a new creature. And, and let me say this. If you think that you've got it all figured out, if you're one of those people who think you've got it all figured out, well, there's not much God can do for you. Because the scriptures over and over say he gives strength to the weary. He doesn't say he gives strength to the strong. He gives rest to the hopeless. And let me let you in on a little secret. If you do have it all figured out, you're weary and weak. Even if you think you do, you're weary and weak. We say around here all the time that the word of the Lord, when it goes forth, 
It should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I believe that. I believe that. I believe when the word of God goes, it comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. People who think they have it all figured out. People who think they know everything there is to know. Okay. Don't, Don't let the labels that people put on you define you. Find your freedom in Christ and don't be someone who puts labels on people. Amen. Amen. Um, Another thing I think we get from Ruth is we see how God feels about the foreigner. In Ruth, we see that God cares for the foreigner. And FYI, just in case you didn't know, that's you. If you had been in the story of Ruth, if I had been in the story of Ruth, it would say Bradley the American. And that would have been my disqualifying tagline. I mean, there's plenty of other things that disqualify me, but that's one. <laughs> we see that God does care for the foreigner. God cares about those outside of our circle. God cares about people who uh, aren't our denomination. <gasps> what? Somebody asked me the other day, what denomination are we? I was glad they asked me that. Because... We're Christians. (laughs) We're followers of Jesus. That should be what marks us. God cares about people outside of our circle. God cares about people who aren't even Christians. God cares, and I don't like to get too political around here, but God cares about the people who are desperate to get into America by any means possible. God cares about those people. God cares about every human being, inside or outside. God cares about the Buddhists. God cares about the Muslims. God cares about everybody. God cares about every human being. God is not willing that any, any, any should perish. But that all, all, all should come to repentance. Even your hard heart. Even my hard heart. Okay. So I I, I talked last week about how Ruth Ruth and Orpah, if you weren't here, I'd tell you to go watch the video, but we were having technical difficulties last week. So we didn't, there isn't a video to watch, but uh, come to me later and I'll preach you the sermon. But Ruth says to Orpah and to Ruth, go back home. I've got nothing left to give. And Orpah kisses her and hugs her and cries and goes home. And Ruth said, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will be buried also. Ruth makes a decision. Ruth makes a decision. And you and I have to make a decision. You and I I've got to make a decision. There was a time in my life where mama's prayers and daddy's prayers didn't cut it anymore. Where I couldn't live under the prayers of grandma and grandpa anymore. There was a time when I had to stand up like a man. This is a couple days ago. And (laughs) make a decision. Was I going to be a follower of Jesus? 
And we all have to make that decision. There are people in this, within the sound of my voice this morning that haven't made that decision. And you need to make that decision that you're going to follow Jesus, that you're going to do this. Dad can't make it for you. Mom can't make it for you. Grandma can't make it for you. They'd love to, but they can't. You have to make a decision. Are you going to deserve? What? Are you going to serve? I started to say decide, and I said deserve. Are you going to decide? You have to make the decision. There comes a point where you have to decide. And that's what Ruth did. She decided. So I'm telling you that you have to decide. Will you decide to follow Jesus? Will you decide to go after him? Or will you just go back to the old way, the old life? So from Ruth, I mean, there's, there's a lot more we can get, but I don't want to take all day. From Ruth, we learn that we don't have to accept the tagline that people give us that our past does not define us, that our station in life does not define who we are and what God has for us. We learn that God loves the foreigner, the outsider. We also learn that we have to stand up and make a decision for ourselves concerning this God. And lastly, I want to look at Boaz. Boaz was the guardian redeemer or the kinsman redeemer. And you know, all my life I've heard that Boaz was a type of Christ, and I believe that Boaz is a type of Christ in, in so much as he was a redeemer, that he redeemed Ruth. Boaz was willing to take a risk. You know, the, the closest kinsman redeemer said, oh, that'll ruin my inheritance. Another translation said, that'll ruin me. And in, in, in this way, Boaz was like Christ. He was willing to take a risk. Philippians 2, 7 through 10 says this, but, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. Jesus took the risk. Boaz took the risk. And I believe in Boaz we see Jesus. I believe Boaz points us to Jesus. Jesus, of course, being the great redeemer. The great redeemer. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. At least Boaz had relation Jesus found us while we were yet sinners. Jesus looked at us at our worst possible place and said, I'm going to die for them. He made himself of no reputation. But then Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ had no obligation to you or me. Boaz had a bit of an obligation to, to Ruth, but Jesus had no obligation to us. But while we were yet sinners, he died for us. When we were at our worst, he died for us. When we were at our very worst, Christ came. 
and died for us while we were yet sinners. And Christ is here this morning. He has died for you. Let's all bow our heads. I'm going to ask the band if they'll come back up. We're going to go into a time of communion.